Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Robert Harwood to discuss his book, I went down to St. James Infirmary and the research which has completely upended our understanding of the origin of a song that's been sung by everyone from Louis Armstrong to the White Stripes. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Robert W. Harwood, the author of I Went Down to St. James Infirmary, Investigations in the Shadowy World of Jazz Blues in the Company of Blind Willie McTell, Louis Armstrong, Don Redmond, Irving Mills, Carl Moore, and a host of others. And where did this dang song come from anyway? Robert, welcome. I think that's the longest subtitle for a book we've ever had. <laughs> it might be one of the longest that I've, I've ever read as well. Now, thank you very much. Glad to be here. And so this is a fascinating book about a fascinating song. I first came across this song from the White Stripes about 20 years ago. Yes. Uh, and then I realized I'd heard it before because I was familiar with Louis Armstrong's early stuff. And mm-hmm. so that's probably the most famous. I think maybe we can agree that's the version. The Louis Armstrong version is the, is the one that sealed this into American culture. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the White Stripes uh, took a lot from the Cab Calloway version. Oh, oh, definitely. And Cab Cab took the Louis Armstrong version and did it with more vocals and made it big pop. But mm-hmm. um, then I came across your book after I had interviewed Chuck Haddix about his Kansas City Blues, and, and that had some discussion of the origin of the song, which I naively assumed was definitive until mm. I came across your book. And there, this is a tangled web, to say the least. <laughs> Yeah, very tangled web. It, uh, it's an, it's a, an extraordinary song. And at the time that I first uh, became um, uh, aware of it, uh, there was uh, a myth around the song uh, about its creation and its origins. And I was interested enough that I did write a book, um, which I called The Unfortunate Rake. Um, referring to uh, a rake's progress and uh, excuse me a rake's progress referring to uh, an unfortunate rake and found out that everything that i had been reading about and researching was incorrect there were assumptions and they didn't properly reflect the story of the song itself a much more mysterious song and much more veiled uh, origins and so tell us first how you came to be interested in the song and then tell us about the misattribution and how that all got started. But first, what, <laughs> what first brought the song to your attention? Uh, that was a, it's an interesting story. A friend had given us back 20 some odd years ago a bootleg cassette tape uh, of uh, Bob Dylan's songs. And uh, listening to that, to stand out on that tape, 
which we listened to in the car repeatedly, my wife and I, uh, was uh, Blind Willie McTell, the song Blind Willie McTell. Uh, A couple of years later, I was sitting in the living room of the apartment I lived in, uh, listening to a new record I had bought, which was uh, jazz vocalists. And Lou Rawls was one of the vocalists. He did a version of St. James Infirmary, which is quite unusual at the time. It's actually um, a modification of the original song, which had been written by Irving Mills in order to uh, cop a second copyright on the song. Uh, So it starts off with, uh, why am I always moaning? And and gets into a a version of the song, which um, is much more... um, how would you say it? It's much more, uh, less chilling. It's a much less chilling version. Uh, but when he opened up into the um, the main body of the song, I went down to St. James Infirmary, I recognized uh, Bob Dylan's Blind Willie McTell. And the fact that at the end of the Blind Willie McTell song, he refers to standing in the window or the doorway of the St. James Hotel. There seemed to be uh, something that would be worth looking into further there, and that's where that's where it all started. And that led you to Blind Willie McTell, who also did a version of the song, but under a different title. Uh, except he, that, and that again was part of the myth, uh, that um, Diane Crapshooter Blues was a song that Blind Willie McTell wrote, and he wrote it in as a tribute to St. James Infirmary. But in fact, Blind Willie McTell never wrote the song, and the song was, uh, was recorded before uh, Louis Armstrong ever went into the studio with his version of St. James Infirmary. Um, but Blind Willie McTell, when he was with Ed Rhodes, I think 1956, he told a long story of how he wrote the song for his friend, and very convincing. And uh, I think most people still think that uh, Blind Willie McTell wrote Diane Crapshooter's Blues. But he didn't <laughs> record it or, or, or pay any attention to it until about 20 years after it first um, entered the recording studio with Martha Martha Copeland and... Uh, uh, and 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 the writer of the song. And she was doing a version that was copyrighted by a guy named Porter Granger, who I'd never heard of until your book, and he had quite a list of copyrights. Yeah, Porter Granger is a really fascinating fellow. He's certainly undervalued. Uh, he he, but he wrote uh, in a bit of a cabaret voice a lot of the time. But he he still wrote blues. He was he was a writer for um, uh, Bessie Smith. And was actually part of her orchestra, and she was, he was uh, an arranger for, for some of her shows, including Mississippi Days. Uh, apparently a bit of a dandy, um, but his uh, he, he went right off the scene. Nobody knew when he was born until I started doing research on it. The fact is it wasn't that hard to find out when he was born, just nobody was interested in him at all. <laughs> so so no, no effort had been made. We still don't know when he died, probably in the 1950s. And he might have been playing in strip parlors and things like that towards the end. It's really difficult to know. Uh, not a great pianist, but a talented songwriter. Um, uh, some of the songs he wrote for Bessie Smith are, are outstanding. Um, uh, one song, Bessie Smith is up in front of a judge for killing her boyfriend. And she says to the judge, uh, you know, how do you know you're no woman? <laughs> and, and this is a man who's writing the song for, for a woman. So he had, uh, he had uh, an ability to empathize. Or at least to put his name on songs that, because we know that 
he got this song from somewhere, probably not his own, solely his own creative imagination. But for, before we get into that, I want to talk about the widespread misattribution, because that's what I'd heard too, um, that St. James Infirmary was a variant of the unfortunate rake, which is most famous to me as the streets of Laredo or the mm-hmm. dying cowboy. Yeah. Um, how did that get into the narrative? Who's the person who connected incorrectly um, St. James with the unfortunate rake? And how did you untangle that mess? Oh, it's um, a kind of a, a British contrarian by the name of A.L. Lloyd. And A.L. Lloyd uh, was sent by his family after his parents died to Australia, where he worked on sheep farms uh, and listened to the songs of the Australians. But he developed... Um, uh, uh, an identity as uh, a communist thinker. He actually got back to England just when the Great Depression was starting and ended up on a whale boat going to the uh, to Antarctica and listened to the songs of the whalers. And he actually has some recordings of whaler songs there. But he did uh, latch on to uh, the unfortunate rake and he wrote he wrote an article it wasn't he didn't seem to be all that interested in saint james infirmary he didn't pay it much attention it comes up twice in his writings once in folk songs of england in which it received a single sentence and then in this article um uh, background to St. James Infirmary Blues, which is about five pages long. Uh, he talked mostly about the unfortunate rake. And at some point, he made this transitional sentence in which St. James Infirmary comes in without any rhyme or reason, uh, without any connecting evidence, uh, but just as an assumption. And that assumption has held ever since. And you're kind of underselling Lloyd because I was introduced to him as if – as um, the Pete Seeger of British folk music is how I was introduced to him. Or somebody called him the, a combination between the Carl Sandburg and the Pete Seeger of British folk music. He was not only a singer-songwriter, but he also, like Carl Sandburg, wrote these massively influential tomes about British mm-hmm. folk music. He did. And, you know, and for a long time dictated who could and couldn't play in, Brit- in the British folk scene and what they could and couldn't play. Uh, you know, his influence goes all through if you read about Bert Jantz or even Paul Simon when he's over there. So, um, you know, a big figure, A.L. Lloyd, and somebody who is so influential that's sort of like a pig rolling over a piglet in a tight stall. He didn't probably <laughs> mean to <laughs> confuse the legacy of this song, but you know, when he made a mistake, it really echoed through the folk music community. Um, but let's go ahead and hear Louis Armstrong's version of St. James Infirmary Blues from 1928. So sweet, so cold, so fair. Let her go, let her go, God bless her. Wherever she may be, she can look this wide world over. She'll never find a sweet man like me. When I die, I want you to dress me in straight leg shoes, box back coat, and a studs and hat. And that was the great Louis Armstrong's version of St. James Infirmary Blues, which I think is, as we said before, the song that really put it on the map of American popular music. Cab Calloway went on to popularize it even further a couple years later. But let's get back to your um, detective work. So (laughs) you're kind of looking through this. You've come through it 
through folk music, um, through Dylan and Willie McTell. Mm-hmm. And Lou Rawls is, is, you know, more in the gospel R&B pop side of that. And so, so you're realizing it's bigger than just folk blues. But your researches at first are focused on um, old books is where you're looking for the source of, of the thing. You, and you found a connection in Carl Sandburg's work. Yeah, Carl Sandburg, uh, as you pointed out, he was a collector, very much like A.L. Lloyd, and apologize if I minimize Lloyd. He was uh, he was hugely influential, and he really started this folk collection uh, movement in uh, in England. Um, he did have a habit, however, of altering lyrics in some of the old songs from time to time in order to better reflect his uh, his feelings about how the people uh, can uh, conquer the world. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, now where where are we at here? We're looking at we're at Sandberg, um, and, and yes, his... yes, yes. So Carl Sandberg uh, collected a, a number of uh, songs uh, on his journey. He was the American poet. He also played guitar, and um, sometimes after a poetry reading, regale his listeners with some uh, some of the songs that he had collected. And he was trying to get hold of songs which were integral to the American experience, the U.S. experience. Um, when he collected those Gambler's Blues, he had, uh, I think, two versions of them uh, that he had collected, and he does have the music for them. It comes out in a, um, a strange, slow, uh, funereal kind of rhythm. Uh, but it is the song which, uh, in, in, in Tin Pan Alley, where people were creating songs, everybody had a copy of Carl Sandburg's American Song Bag. And that is probably where Phil Baxter um, and Carl Moore uh, managed to get hold of this song because they had actually um, copyrighted it perhaps a year before uh, Carl Sandburg's book came out. Now wait, and so... Baxter Moore copyrighted it before Sandberg's book came out, but you think they got it from the book? That uh, somehow the, the the song was obviously there, uh, and the song was in Texas. It was was in okay, Arkansas. Okay, so you think they've got common sources as yes. Carl Sandberg? Okay, yes, that, I, that's I a good point. Yes, that's the case. Yeah, because the thing about Carl Sandberg that is important to me is he was collecting these songs in the teens and twenties and even the nineteen hundreds before recorded music really started distorting the process like when mm-hmm. he was out among the cowboys and the field hands and the shipmen it's reasonable to assume he had a more accurate view of their actual folk music whereas when somebody like alan lomax or john lomax is out there uh in the 30s and 40s frequently they're going you know these remote locations to prisons and penitentiaries and plantations and, and meeting people like lead belly and muddy waters mm-hmm. And leaving out that Muddy Waters is a big Gene Autry fan who's hearing songs <laughs> on the radio and, and on 40, you know, 78 uh, records. And so Sandberg is this window to this 19th century before recorded music really mixes up um, the American folk music process. Yes. And, uh, but, one of the, mm-hmm, one of the well, concerns of the Sandberg, of the, of the, um, 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 uh, Lomax's, uh, was that the people who had the songs were becoming um, distorted from what they heard on the radio, which is why they ended up going to prison farms, which for some reason they felt uh, would be shielding the, the, the people who were prisoners there 
from the distorting influence of the radio and um, and records. And and Lomax has also had a habit of inserting themselves in the process. And Alan Lomax, you say, connected a song that he had found, um, sung by a guy named Ironhead Baker, mm-hmm. in a Texas prison, who was doing a song called St. Ja- James Hospital, that Lomax then rationally connects with St. James Infirmary. But you think that's a dead end. I think it's an absolute dead end. If anybody just listens to the two songs side by side, there's there's very little to uh, to to compare them. Um, but Alan declared in um, a record collection of unfortunate rake outtakes and v- variations uh, that this was the connecting principle between the unfortunate rake and St. James. Um, St. James Infirmary, which is something that Bob Dylan, during his one of his um, uh, radio broadcasts, had repeated. But I think that's probably an error on the part of his researchers. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I, I have never been able to see any connection um, lyrically or musically between those two songs. And one of the connections you did find, though, and this one really came out of left field, I thought was fascinating, but you found a song called She's Gone, Let Her Go (laughs) from the Harvard University Songs of 1902. And that is absolutely the source of a big chunk of the St. James Infirmary Blues as done by Louis Armstrong. If that's where it first came from, and it's an interesting thing because this, the uh, Harvard University, they used to put out um, books of the songs that their uh, students would be singing around the piano in the evening time. Um, so they'd be pretty, pretty well-off Caucasian students. Um, and a lot of the songs that they sang there were fairly the Marseillaise was one of the songs, for instance. Um, but back in 1902, um, they said uh, there may be a change in the weather, there may be a change in the sea, there may be a change all over, but there'll never be a change in me. And um, she's gone, let her go, God bless her, for she's mine wherever she may be. You may roam this whole wide world all over, but you'll never find a friend like me. And this lyric comes up many times. Uh, the earliest one I found is this one, the 1902 Harvard Songbook. But it comes up many, many times in intervening years, sometimes as a song in itself um, or pay on to somebody's um, dear old mother or uh, something about a person really saying, well, you know, it's, it's your loss, toots. Um, you're gone, let her go, and I'm going to do better without you. <laughs> uh, but it was, yeah, paltry little song, but thought that lyric uh, got embedded into um, St. James and Fermi and actually gives it uh, part of its uh, sinister cast, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the curveball that that they throw in. It starts out as a song of mourning and then takes this twist. And and the Mm -hmm. language, you know, let her go, God bless her. It sounds, you know, friendly enough. But then the the punchline of she'll never find another man like me comes in. And that's really thrown a lot of people off. And I noticed in versions later on. Uh, like Tony Bennett's version in the '40s, they iron all that out, and mm-hmm. and they make they they make the the singer mourn. I'll never find another sweetheart for me, and things like that. And so it's interesting this attempt to rationalize it. But to me, it kind of takes some of the magic out of, you know, 
like what you say, the sinister cast of the song and then the narcissism of the singer. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it absolutely it absolutely does. And it's it's uh, it's a very long song. There are many verses to it, but it's just the three verses that uh, are, are the ones most people remember now. And let's go ahead and hear our second version. And there's so many fascinating versions of this that I hope you'll forgive me. I picked some of my favorites. So this is uh, Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, doing what he called those gambler's blues. to see you here Cause you know you used to be my own I goes on out to see the doctor Your gal is low, he said I went back to see my baby Good God, she was lying there dead Hey, ho, oh, ho, oh, oh. ho Hey, hey, oh. And that was Jimmy Rogers doing those gambler's blues from right around the same time as Louis Armstrong recorded it, he doesn't mention St. James Infirmary, although there's a spot where he definitely could have. So it seems unlikely that he got it from the Louis Armstrong recording, but it was just something that was really out in the ether by the late 20s. And it's funny because Rogers and Armstrong even Armstrong even played on one of Rogers' songs mm-hmm. that, that's become famous since then. Johnny Cash had Louis Armstrong on his TV show in 1970 to, to, to put that together, but I don't know. It's just fascinating to me that the father of jazz and the father of country music are working with the same material right around the same time, but from different sources, likely. Likely, yeah. Or Jimmy Rogers uh, may have embellished uh, quite a bit uh, of that song, but he does tell quite a different story, doesn't he? Yeah, it's it's um, a very different tale. But you you mentioned two characters by name that we haven't properly introduced, and this is Carl Moore, who you referred to in the intro as the Arkansas Hick, who is the hmm. leader of a sophisticated orchestra and the first to claim authorship of the song. And he worked with a guy named Phil Baxter. And and did they claim co- claim co credit on the song? They claimed co credit Phil uh, with the uh, music and Carl with the lyric for the song. And essentially, it's the um, song from Carl Sandburg. Um, the, the two of them are, are fascinating characters, the two of my favorite characters in the book. And I, I see the book as being this playoff with, with different personalities uh, coming in and out and influence the cultural milieu in which they were. And Carl Moore did come from Arkansas. And uh, he he uh, became a drummer um, in small bands around there. He actually he actually led a couple of bands when he was a teenager. Phil Baxter, on the other hand, came from Texas, and he uh, was a, a lanky, very thin fellow with a pencil mustache, uh, who ended up leading a group called the Texas Tommies. And the Texas Tommies would dress in cowboy boots and cowboy hats, but they wouldn't be playing cowboy songs. They'd be playing the uh, the jazz standards of the day. Uh, he ended up being um, uh, being uh, the, the lead band in the El Torreon Ballroom in Kansas City uh, for a period of time. But before that, uh, he was touring with, uh, with Carl Moore, and he tried to sell uh, the sheet music, and it's very, very hard to find. I do have a copy of it. It took me about five years uh, to find that. Um, but uh, 
he and he did he did register it, but for some reason or other, um, Irving Mills, the music impresario and, and manager, uh, was able to get hold of the song and put his pseudo name uh, onto the song. And Phil Baxter, although he was he tried to argue it in courts, he never got anywhere with that. At which point Phil had to retire because he had arthritis in his hands and couldn't play piano anymore. And these two also wrote a song that's kind of dear to my heart. It's Ding Dong Daddy from Dumas, which I'm from the <laughs> Texas Panhandle, and Dumas, Texas is not far from my hometown. But yeah. you think I was probably referring to Dumas, Arkansas. Uh, um, could be referring to both of them or one or the other. I don't know. I don't have a stand, <laughs> stand on that. <laughs> but the fact that Carl Moore comes from Arkansas, Phil Baxter comes from Texas, both towns claim it's their song, and they have things like Dumas Days. Uh, Louis Armstrong recorded a very famous version of, of that. It was a standard uh, standard song um, at the time. And it can be, again, very long, many, many verses. Um, but you can, you can see the character or the persona uh, of Carl Moore and the lyric of that song. So it's, it's possible that he was the lyricist for it. In the end, it became attributed to Phil Baxter alone as his song. So Baxter managed to hold on to at least one copyright. But before we get to Irving Mills, let's talk about how the song finds its way to Louis Armstrong. So Louis Armstrong is playing gigs in Chicago, but he's not a band leader on stage. But he starts doing recording sessions as a band leader, the famous Hot Fives and Hot Sevens that mm -hmm. I think essentially invent jazz as we know it now as an improvisatory art uh, based around virtuoso soloists, Louis Armstrong being the virtuoso soloist. But a guy named Don Redman is is the vector that, that connects the song to Louis Armstrong. Tell us a little bit about Don Redman, and who he was, what he did, and how he brought that song to Louis Armstrong. Um, Don Redman was... Um uh, he played clarinet. Uh, he was university trained. He's a black man, university trained, and he developed um, a means of writing uh, scores for big bands, which allowed uh, a fair degree of improvisation. And that's that was what made Fletcher Henderson so popular because Don Redman became the arranger for Fletcher Henderson's band. Um, but he ended up leaving. Henderson for McKinney's Cotton Pickers, after which Henderson's band didn't do as well as it had before. But he was down in, um, uh, he was he was in, I can't, I quite I think it was Southern here. Illinois where he saw Al Katz and his kidneys. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I can't quite remember that detail. But uh, he saw Al Katz and his kittens. And Al had a couple of new members uh, brought onto his band who encouraged him to perform St. James Infirmary. Katz thought it was too low down a song for his more sophisticated or pop loving audiences. But Don Redman uh, heard that, talked to the uh, people in the band, and took it to Chicago with him where he was overseeing recordings uh, for Louis Armstrong. And the story goes that he then showed Louis Armstrong the uh, the score and um, Armstrong recorded it. And Don Redman had his name on the first release of that record. So the, the actual 78 RPM record will have Don Redman down as the sole composer of that song. And every release after that um, had a name, Joe Primrose as the composer of the song. So what happened in the interim, it's hard to say, but Joe Primrose, his name didn't come onto the record until at least six months after it had been released, uh, which is a bit surprising. 
yeah, there's some shenanigans there. And and, def- and in defense of Don Redman and Phil Baxter and Carl Moore and everybody else who's put their name on this song, mm-hmm. that was pretty much standard practice in that day and age. I mean, uh, A.P. Carter, for example, one of the truly great figures in country music, put his name on dozens of songs that are absolutely proven to have been on sheet music You know, 20 or 30 years before he quote unquote wrote them. So it's pretty mm-hmm. much standard practice in this time to take a folk song – arrange it for a pop recording and put your name on it as a songwriter. It's not like Don Redman was what, you know, a modern day Jimmy Page or somebody who's infamous for plagiarism. This was pretty much standard practice at the time. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Um, and A.P. Carter, he traveled with a fellow called Leslie Riddle, who was a black mm-hmm. um, guitar player. And Riddle would memorize the, uh, the melodies and Carter would memorize the lyrics or write down the lyrics. And then come back and uh, teach uh, Maybell and so forth uh, the, the songs. But they were almost cu- uh, cutty cutter, uh, cookie cutter. They're very so close to the original songs um, that, again, like you say, it was it was common practice. Uh, the money that you earned wasn't so much in the performance of the song; it was in the residuals that you'd receive when other people performed the song, and you were the composer. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about the guy who ends up owning the copyright to St. James Infirmary Blues. And so, yeah, we've run through a number of just absolute musical history heavyweights between uh, Lloyd, Carl Sandberg, the Lomaxes. We haven't even mentioned Buell Casey, who was a early, uh, I would call him really a folk singer. He, he, performed for the country market and made records mm-hmm. for the country market, but it's kind of the classic folk singer in that he's somebody who self-consciously collected folk songs and recorded them. He did a version of Gambler's Blues. I think you called it the second version of that ever recorded in 1928. So yeah. just some absolutely big figures. Louis Armstrong, of course, an absolute titan, not just of jazz, but also of pop vocal styles, along with Bing Crosby and Ethel Waters and Bessie Smith, essentially invented the modern style of pop singing. And Don Redman, and I'm not trying to jump on you for underselling, I just want my audience (laughs) to really understand how big a deal these people are. Don Redman invented swing. I mean, by arranging... Because of his classical training, he could arrange jazz orchestras such that you could have a jazz orchestra that was still hot and could play as hot as Louis Armstrong's small combos had learned to play in New Orleans. So that is an absolutely immense contribution to music. But none of these people could hold a candle to the guy who ends up controlling the copyright. And that's one Irving Mills. Tell us about Irving Mills. The pro and the con case for him, uh, you know, he's he's somebody who made absolute positive contributions to music and somebody who put his name on a lot of songs that's very dubious whether or not he had anything to do with writing of them. Yeah, you're right there. I think, you know, Irving Mills really should be in the Hall of Fame somewhere. Um, he's been he he never wanted a biography of himself done, and I think he he felt he'd been uh, misunderstood during his lifetime. But he was he was uh, he and his brother started um, Mills Music um, and Gotham Music, in which they purchased all sorts of songs from itinerants, uh, people on the street, give them twenty dollars or so. Uh, but. He was also a, a manager, and the reason he gets a bad rap as a manager is that with Duke Ellington, for instance, uh, Cab Calloway, 
they would get perhaps 10% of the of the money they made. Um, and it was it was normal. No, mills would get 50% of the money they made. And it was normal for a manager to receive about 10% of the funds. But because a black musician required a white impresario, they were free to to uh, charge more money for them. These individuals in these bands wouldn't have got anywhere if it weren't for a person like um, Irving Mills. So again, as you say, he was doing what people just do at the time and can't be uh, can't be faulted for that. He, um, mm-hmm. Well, I just want to mention, he's, he comes from a very hard Scrabble background. He's one of your classic uh, Jewish Americans from the very rough streets of New York City, a peer of Irving Berlin uh, and so many others um, mm-hmm. of, of of that ilk. So you know he came from nothing. He he and his maybe his brother got a little head start and helped him out, but came from nothing. Made himself a magnate, and yeah, he took a big fee as a manager. But there's also a reason that we've heard of Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway in 2021, yeah. and a lot of that is due to Irving Mills, who. You know, there's good managers and bad managers, and there's some managers who take more of the pie than maybe they're entitled to. But a good manager makes his client famous, and Irving Mill definitely passes that test. Oh, he does without without doubt. He he fronted uh, quite a few uh, bands of his, and uh, he would say, "Well, you can have say Duke Ellington uh, for a week at your." Uh, um, your show place, but only if you allow this other band that I'm managing. To. So, so he's very, very canny in that way. But you're right. He he came from Odessa with his family. He was a baby. He always said he was born in New York. Um, the evidence that I found is that he was born in Russia. Uh, his father was a tie salesman. His father died when he was quite young. Uh, the kids had to leave school. Um, at one point, uh, uh, Irving was running errands with um, with some of the uh, show places in New York and and giving messages to people. And he eventually became a song plugger, um, trying to uh, increase the popularity of some of the songs that were there. And gradually, he and his brother uh, were able to start start a business uh, with some songs that became very popular at the time and were, were able to um, when Crusoe died God had a songbird in heaven the song that you can't find anywhere now but which probably started their career and allowed them to have about a million dollars in order to go further with that um, but he was he was uh I guess part of his reputation with Duke Ellington is that Ellington and Strayhorn and so forth would write songs. Um, Mills would make some recommendations as to how to simplify the song or uh, put a bit of melody in there, and then he'd have his name on the song as a co-author as well. And some people feel that that might not have been absolutely legitimate for him. But as far as St. James Infirmary, he obviously saw this as a very valuable commodity. He didn't think it was going to last very long. He thought it was just going to be a year or two on the bestseller list. Uh, But he didn't want anybody to think that the song uh, could have questionable authorship. If he put his name on that song, uh, 
then people, well, how did, where, where did Irving Mills get that from? And he could be up for some kind of legal action. So he developed a name which was uh, redolent of uh, the Deep South, uh, Joe Primrose. And he put Joe Primrose's name on the song. And that's the only song that Joe ever ever wrote. <laughs> you won't find him. You won't find him anywhere in the copyright pages. Just the just the one just the one song. And when the uh, uh, copyright came up for renewal in the nineteen sixties, Irving put his own name on that song. And by that time, the controversy had died down, and and it was clear it was a, a standard and well worth having. I love the idea of of Irving Mills coming up with a southern nom de plume, <laughs> his, <laughs> his concept. And we we've skipped over a couple of figures. I want to go back to. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's there's these characters that that actually recorded one of the first versions of Gambler's View, Gambler's Blues, and that's Fess Williams and his Royal Flush Orchestra, who recorded yeah. the song in 1927. They attributed it to Baxter and Moore, who mm-hmm. had published his sheet music in 1925. Tell us a little bit about Fess Williams and how he plays into the story and where he possibly got the song. Yeah, Fess Williams. His name was Fess. Is uh, short for professor. He was a school teacher. His uh, mother didn't want him to be a musician, which is what he really wanted to do. And he finally struck out on his own to play clarinet um, with a band he called the Royal Flush Orchestra. And they were a band that would do uh, handstands while playing their instruments or headstands while playing their instruments or the, the bass player lying on his back and holding the bass up with his feet. And Fess Williams at the front of the band waving his arms in wild syncopation, not so much for the for the benefit of the band, but for the benefit of the audience who would actually become more excited as a result of uh, his presentation. He had a a way of playing his instrument that he could imitate all sorts of different sounds, you know, church bells and trains and that sort of thing. Um, So he had uh, had a a pretty interesting recording history. Um, The fact that he was able to get into the studio with uh, Gambler's Blues is, I'm not sure quite how it happened, uh, but I think it had to do with uh, one of the record producers that he was working with. And in the book, you get into um, a number of, I don't want to say, you go down a couple of rabbit trails, but let me let me cue our next song, <laughs> and then we'll come back and, sit and talk about some of the other rabbit trails. And this is one of my favorite versions of the song. This is Bobby Blue Bland doing St. James Infirmary uh, from one of his classic albums from the early 60s. Infirmary, and I heard my baby groan, and I felt so Tried so hard to keep from crying. My heart felt just like lead. That was a son of Memphis, Bobby Blue Bland, doing St. James Infirmary uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. You can hear an updated version with triplets on the pianos uh, and those uh, soul style horns blast in there. But let's go back to the 20s and talk 
a little bit more. We talked about Fess Williams uh, and, and how he got into it. And in the book, you give kind of a history of the blues boom in the 20s, which we've talked about many times on the show, Mamie Smith's uh, pioneering version of Crazy Blues, the first time that a black singer had recorded blues on record. And it's a ma- immediately a sales phenomenon and triggers essentially – roots music in america people like ralph peer suddenly discover oh there's money to be made um with black singers and there's money to be made with hillbilly singers and they fan out across the country and and record all these people but you also made another discovery where you find the melody of this song in a totally obscure tune called charleston cabin it was recorded mm. by Whitey Kaufman's original Pennsylvania Serenaders, and it's credited <laughs> to a guy named Roy Baber. How did you make that connection, and how do you think that melody gets into the mix? Was this where the melody came from, and then it's added to the song by somebody? You know, tell us what you think happened here. Yeah, so it is. It is difficult. I, I first heard that song as a result of a podcast, a pod. Um, uh, by uh, Rob Walker, and Rob Walker um, had a blog uh, devoted to St. James and Fermi. So for a while, there were two blogs devoted to the one song, and I'm still good friends with uh, with Rob Walker. I saw him in New Orleans when I was there a couple of years ago. But um, yeah, I, I have frankly, I have no idea. But the it's as if with the Kaufman version, they took. Uh, just part of the song. I went down to St. James Infirmary, saw my baby there, went down to St. James Infirmary, saw my baby there, and they build the entire <laughs> the entire song in that little that little fragment. But it's um it's undeniably uh, the St. James Infirmary melody or portion of it that they're using. Uh, my guess then is that um, they they based the song on on St. James Infirmary itself and created something new out of it. And that happens all the time, of course. There's no, there's no song in the world that isn't based on something that came before it. Uh, everything has those building blocks, uh, and it all depends on what it is that that you've heard or been exposed to, which will determine what you're able to create yourself. Yeah, fundamentally, I think I've discovered after years of banging my head against the wall, these topics is that we can't know that all we can go by is the evidence we have, and there's no way to definitively prove almost anything about anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but yeah. we do know when songs were recorded, when they were copyrighted, we can hear the similarities. And we've come to a point in the story where you cover something in the book that's I think of as kind of the iceberg of American music, because it's a topic we find very painful and difficult to discuss today, and mm-hmm. rightfully so, because it's a shameful part of our history. And I'm talking about minstrelsy, which people call blackface or uh, the horrible name coon songs, was um, at one point something like 15% of the sheet music market in America. Um, tell us how minstrelsy connects to this, because you spend a little bit of time making those connections, and some of the performers that – we mentioned doing the first versions of Crapshooter Blues basically come out of a vaudeville slash minstrelsy tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I think I, I went into that in a in a, a, a bit of detail uh, simply because I'd read accounts of uh, minstrel shows in which St. James Infirmary appears to have been one of the songs that they were singing in the shows. Uh, but there's nothing 
that I could really um, sort of grab hold of with with any um, with any real strength there. Uh, but the minstrel the minstrel shows fascinated me because they were they were meant to represent the true musical heritage of the slaves and of black America. Whereas in fact, <laughs> they were almost all Irish jigs uh, that were written by uh, people who put on the shows and covered their own uh, sort of white um, um, skin with, uh, with burnt cork and made terrible fun of, of um, uh, and there was a lot of fear, you know, at the time. They'd even make fun of. They call he had a he had a, a foot, a, a, a heel like a plow, and that's just that they had noticed that there was a, a bit of a difference in the anatomy of uh, of um, a foot of an African American, where there could be a bit of a protrusion at the back. So even that tiny uh, inconsistency or difference between them became a major way of putting them in their place and keeping them down in their place. Stephen Foster was a bit different. You know, he he did write songs in which uh, made you feel that working in the cotton fields is a really nice thing to do. Um, and having a lot of nostalgia for those good old days back then. But he did change his tune and he and he rebelled against songs that other people had put out and made very famous. But the but the, 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 the movement of these ex-slaves now coming into New York and coming into Chicago and and um, people being threatened for their jobs the same way as New Yorkers felt about the Irish or Catholics. Yeah, um, and you I'm mentioned sorry. the song uh, All Coons Look Alike to Me, I think was the way it was oh, published in Street yes, Music. Yes, that's right. And it's by a guy named Ernest Hogan, and this song has fascinated me for a long time. I'm glad you brought it up because he was a black writer, one mm -hmm. of the first black um, musicians to produce a show on Broadway. That mm -hmm. song was the first million-selling sheet music written by an African-American. I think he beats um, Scott Joplin to the punch on that. And yet it's this totally racist song that was recognized as racist and hurtful at the time. And his own community shamed him for that, and rightfully so. But the irony of it is it's a song he learned in a whorehouse in Minneapolis, and it was originally all pimps look alike to me. So oh. it was a song of female liberation hmm. that – because of the vagaries of the market, <laughs> we, you know, in, in, in the 1890s, it was more commercial to sell an explicitly racist song. There was no problem whatsoever with that. Mm. Um, but you couldn't, of course, uh, singing a song about pimps would be absolutely verboten. So, yeah, we're getting into and a, a bit of field, but um, – you know, that would be scandalous writing about pimps, and I think that sometimes we have sanitized versions of St. James Infirmary. I think if we had been able to go back in time before the recording studio, we'd be quite shocked or, or surprised at the, 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 the direction some of the lyrics for the song might have taken back then. Yeah, I have no doubt. And I want to invite you to speculate. You've been very scrupulous with your research and just did an incredible job of unearthing uh, these connections. I think that the Harvard University songs thing is just a masterstroke of research and clearly is the source from the song. But where do you think the song really originated from? Was it a cowboy song that then got take, brought into the African-American community? Or, you know, a lot of uh, cowboys were African-Americans. Some people think that's why it was called cowboys, just to keep yeah. the derogatory term there. What do you think, speculate a little bit if you're willing to, on where 
um, the song came from? Oh, it's uh, speculated a bit. Uh, just recently, um, I'll just see if I can find my link here. But just recently, I received a question from a person who's doing some research into uh, an old comic book from the 1940s and 50s. And one of the lines in the comic book um, is called Barnaby, and he has a fairy godfather. And the fairy godfather is a bit of a blustery fellow who likes to blow his own horn, but he's getting ready to to recite a, a, a long and tedious poem with the opening words, "'Twas a balmy summer evening and a goodly crowd was there. It well nigh filled Joe's barroom on the corner of the square." And this was written in the 19th century, this poem, but obviously, again, it's a, a line which finds itself in many versions of Gambler's Blues and St. James Infirmary. And just as the let her go, God bless her um, verse does. So I think my own feeling is that it it, it sprang up. It, it wasn't related to the unfortunate rake. It wasn't related to streets of Laredo. Uh, the melody is completely different, but you know both of them uh, have uh, a litany of, of things that the person would like at their funeral at the end, and that's where that particular connection comes from. Uh, but I think it's, it was a joined it's a song that came together gradually, and it probably arose out of Black America. I think it's probably uh, a, a true um, traditional blues song and possibly one of the the, the oldest blues songs uh, in existence. And let's go ahead and hear the White Stripes version of St. James Infirmary Blues that first brought the song to my attention. Yeah, good one. And that was the White Stripes turn of the millennial version of St. James Infirmary Blues that I think was on their first CD, The White Stripes. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about the publishing history of the book, how you first did it as Rake's Progress, scrapped it, did another version, and now it's being published um, by another publisher this spring. Yes, it will be. Uh, yeah, the first the first version was um, uh, Rake's Progress, which again, it, it really took the material that was out there and easy to access. Uh, but I continued to be interested in the song after we did that book. My wife uh, designed the cover and the inside and so forth, uh, but soon found that almost everything that I had written about was incorrect. And I felt I then had to go back into that and um, and correct some of those mistakes and put it back on a, a more historically interesting and hopefully accurate traje trajectory. But then, of course, as these things happen, um, more information <laughs> became available, which I was able to wrap into. Uh, into the book and and include some of the uh, more details about some of the characters that appear into it and you know write a bit more of the dance halls of the day um, and that sort of thing and then recently 
I, a fellow uh, who lives on Galliano Island, out just off British Columbia, as a folk musician, he got hold of the book and then he referred the book to these publishers who are in um, Los Angeles. Um, and it's called Genius Books. And they became interested. And so now it's no longer going to be a self-published book. It's going to be a book which has representation from uh, from a bona fide publisher. And as a result, we're updating the book as well and putting in some more information, which just became available uh, to me uh, in the past uh, couple of months. Well, that's exciting. Can we get a sneak preview of any of these? Any of the new information? Yeah. Sort of well, new that, fact. Uh, that, that poem uh, I uh, mentioned to you uh, from um, uh, from the, the person who did Harold and the Purple Crayon and did the Barnaby cartoons, uh, and that's simply the fact that uh, this fellow called Darcy, uh, who was uh, an American impresario of sorts, he, he wrote the poem. And poetry back in those days, we're talking about the early 20th century, late 19th century, uh, was a big draw. People would actually pay money to go and hear uh, poets declaim uh, their works. Interestingly, uh, Darcy uh, himself apparently took the poem from somebody else who'd written it about 18, 18 years earlier. So again, you have this this uh, borrowing uh, that goes back and forth because it's a modification of, of the earlier poem. And I kind of think of that as love and theft, imitation, flattery. And that's St. James Infirmary. I think that's what St. James Infirmary um, is all about in the end. Yeah, and you you end the book, or at least the second edition that I've got, with a note about copyright, mm. and and make a couple of points there. You care to reprise any of that quite quickly before we wrap? Because I think it's a very yeah. important point. Yeah, very quickly. Um, copyright in in well, let's go to the United States with the United States in 1790. The, the copyright laws recognize that everything depends on something else. You can't take something away and not allow someone else to build upon it because then your landscape becomes arid, whether that's a sewing machine or a song. But the people should also be allowed to profit from, from what they make. So they uh, declared in 1790 a copyright of uh, 17 years, and if the individual was still alive at the end of the 17 years, they could renew it for a total of 34 years, which means that if the song was written in 1920, it would be 1954, uh, and a return of, to the public domain for other people to, to utilize and build upon and, and modify. Uh, probably, partly at least as a result of uh, Walt Disney's love of Mickey Mouse, those um, rules became extended until now. Basically, uh, it's 70 years after the death of the individual who created the item. So if a song was created in 1920 and the individual didn't die until 1960, <laughs> then that item would, would be out of the public domain until something like 2030. Uh, so, so the ownership of things has extended and probably more and more as corporations became more influential um, within that sphere. So when you look at St. James Infirmary particularly, and you look at the notion that the song, which... And in, in, in a way, it always existed, was 
stolen by somebody and then kept out of the public domain because because once you have ownership of it, you can sue people. Um, it's amazing that Jimmy Rogers didn't get sued, but maybe Irving Mills wasn't that aware of what was happening in hillbilly music, which is what it was called at the time. Or maybe Ralph Peer was powerful enough to scare him off if he considered it. Possibly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so so I became the more and more I, I, I worked on the book, the more sensitive I became uh, to the notion that there is um, a public commons, and we draw our inspiration from that public commons. But the more of it that's fenced off that you can't reach, the less. Uh, somebody once suggested, you know, if, if this copyright um, matter keeps growing, we'll all be doing variations on Home on the Range and won't have very much else available to us to, to, to yeah. draw upon and to modify. I'm hoping to do some episodes because there's recently been some extremely egregious um, judici ju judicial jurisprudence around copyrights. I'm thinking of the Blurred Lines case and attempts to copyright timbre, meaning the very sound of instruments. Oh, um, yes. You know, and if you look yeah. at hip hop songs today, sometimes, you know, they make fun of hip hop artists because you might have 30 people credited uh, with a song. But I think that if everybody involved in St. James Infirmary had lawyered up in the 1920s, <laughs> you could easily have had that many people with their names on the copyright of this song. You would have had Sandberg, um, you would have Granger, you'd have Baxter and Moore, you'd yeah. have uh, Joe Primrose, our friend, you'd have, you'd have Don. Of Fess Williams because he has that sort of comic. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, so uh, fascinating stuff, Robert. And I'm so glad that you've done the research. You've really enriched well, our you. knowledge. Of Thank this you song. so much. With the copyright, I, I'm going to give you a name. His name's Charles Cronin, C R O N I N. Mm -hmm. He's a lawyer, and he has a website devoted to um, uh, music copyright infringement. Ah, I will. I will definitely check that out. Charles My guess is. Robert W. Harwood. The book is I Went Down to St. James Infirmary, about to come out from Genius Books in the spring of 2022, which is probably when you're hearing this episode. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Robert. Well, thank you very much for asking me. I've, uh, I've enjoyed it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and co-host Garrett Cash will kick off a special Holy Roll miniseries discussing the history of gospel music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.